in the Bible, the book of John, chapter 14 this morning. John's Gospel, chapter 14, and we're going to read several passages from chapter 14 and chapter 16 as I begin a new series today for a few weeks, and I have entitled it, Meet the Holy Spirit. It's been a number of years since I did an entire thorough series of messages on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And I'd like to begin today and ask you to stand to your feet with me, if you will. John chapter number 14, and we're going to read verses 16 through 19 first, and then we will skip and read. I will direct you as we go. John 14 and verse number 16. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, with a capital C, referring to deity, to God, another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And what an important phrase. You might want to underline that in your Bible. He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But you see me, because I live, you shall live also. Verse 25, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost. Don't let the word ghost throw you. When the Bible is translated ghost, and spirit meant the same thing. So they're totally synonymous. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. And whatsoever I have said unto you, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now to chapter 16, if you will, please, and verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And then verse 13, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and show it unto you. And Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable unto you, and that you will speak to us in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16 are uh, a description of the very last night 
that the Lord Jesus Christ had on the earth before his crucifixion. And by that midnight, he would be taken captive, and he would be enduring a trial that was a mock trial, and then later his crucifixion. So that evening, he spoke to his disciples in the most intimate way that he ever speaks to them. And that evening, he revealed to them truth he had not revealed prior to that time. You can imagine what was going on in their hearts and in their minds. If you go back to chapter 13 and verse 33, he basically says to them, I'm leaving and you can't come with me. And so you're not going to, I'm not going to be here with you from now on. And that evening was a great crisis brewing in the hearts of both the Lord himself, of course, because of what he was about to endure and in the lives of his followers. The disciples were depressed because of the news. He's going to leave us. We have absolutely spent our life with him now for three and a half years, and suddenly he's going to be gone. He will not be with us anymore. And they were also concerned because Judas, during that evening, had gotten up and left the table and revealed to them that he was going to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And... There was division among them. They had been arguing a a short time before about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And all this ambition and pride was coming out, obviously, in their lives. And so we have depression about the leaving of the Lord Jesus. We have division between the group of men themselves, and we have desertion. One of them has already peeled off and left them, turned back, and betrayed the Lord. In chapter 1 and verse 14, you have one of the most familiar passages in all the Scripture, and it begins, let not your heart be troubled. So obviously, Jesus is really emphasizing his comforting presence. He is concerned about their emotional well-being and their spiritual life. He's trying to encourage them. He's always trying to encourage them. He's encouraging us even today. In verse 18 of chapter 14, he again says to them, I will not leave you comfortless. I'm going to leave, but I'm not abandoning you. I will, I will take care of you, even though I'm not going to physically be present. And in verse number 27, he repeats it again. He said, peace I give unto you, and let not your heart be troubled So he says it for the third time. He is bringing comfort to the hearts of the people. You know, I don't want to get off on that with an application yet because I want to preach and teach the material that I've already prepared for. But what an applicable thing for us even this morning because division is uh, rank among us today. I've never seen America as divided as it is this morning All week long, all we're hearing is division about one thing, and then as soon as it goes away, it seems like another thing. So we are living in a time of division. We're living in a time of desertion here, and like Judas, many have turned their back on Christianity and are turning back from following the Lord Jesus Christ. They want a religion that's more convenient, that's easier for them to be able to practice than the traditional Christian faith. 
And we live in a time of great depression. People just feel like things are not right. All the polls indicate that. So certainly this is a relevant and a very applicable and very practical passage of Scripture in and of itself. But my subject is meeting the Holy Spirit. The first thing I want you to notice about the Holy Spirit in this passage is in verse number 16. And that is that the Lord Jesus Christ refers to him as the comforter. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter. I've always already pointed out it has a capital C, and the Bible uses capitals to denote deity when it uses the term. The Greek word from which comforter is translated is paraclete. You've probably heard that. It literally means one who is called alongside to help. One who is called alongside who helps. So really what Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you another comforter, another comforter. The word another means one of the same nature too. And so I'm going to send you someone who is of the same nature as I am, one who is God, but in a different form than I am, or another way sometimes the word paraclete is interpreted is an advocate. When you get in trouble with the law or when you need to go to court or there's a legal matter, you go to an attorney. And we often refer to attorneys as advocates because they advocate for us. They go and represent us before the bar of human justice or they go to the courthouse and take care of matters for us, in our name. They have the power to speak for us, an advocate, if you will. And so the Lord Jesus here says, I'm going to send you another one like myself of the same nature that I am, and he is going to be your my stand-in with you. He is going to advocate. He's going to represent you before God. He's going to be with you and comfort you and help you. Now, the reason that Jesus did this is because he knows that after his death, he will ascend back to heaven, and he can't be everywhere. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he took on a human body, was no longer omnipresent. He couldn't be everywhere in the world at one time. So he said, I'm going to send another one of the same nature that I am, who can be everywhere in the world at the same time, who can carry out my ministry in the hearts of people. And, of course, he was referencing the Holy Spirit. Well, did he keep his promise? He sure did. In Acts chapter 2, we have the day of Pentecost. And chapter 2, verse 1 says that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, the Holy Spirit came and there were visible signs that he had come because The Lord wanted the people of that day to know that he had, in fact, carried out his promise, and the Holy Spirit had now come to the earth. And from that point on, up until right now, the Holy Spirit is the agent of Almighty God. He is the Spirit who has come to be within us. Now, the the second thing I want you to quickly note about the Holy Spirit is that he is a person. Because some of the cults and many foreign religions believe in some form of a great spirit, a spirit being, but they don't 
think of him as being personal. I want you to notice when the Lord talks about the Holy Spirit, he uses the he uses the personal pro, uh, he uses the pronouns him and he for example in verse number 16 there i'll send the comforter that he may abide with you forever and he refers to him as he and him never as it always it is a personal pronoun used in reference to the holy spirit's work and it would be worth our time probably to go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Will you just keep your finger there in John and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And the very last verse in the book of 2 Corinthians is verse 14. And Paul there emphatically states that the Holy Spirit is not only God, he is not only a, a person in the Trinity, but also that he is a person, that he's not an influence, he's not a force, if you will. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's Jesus Christ, and the love of God, there's God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. He's not talking about a force. He's not talking about an influence he is talking about a living being. He is talking about a person, a person who has knowledge because the Holy Spirit, in many references in the Bible, it talks about the Holy Spirit knowing. It talks about him feeling that he has emotions, that he acts, that he has a will, that he can communicate, he can speak as a person. So when you take those attributes of a person who can think, who can feel, who can act, who can communicate, then you have a perfect definition of what a person is. So the Holy Spirit is another like Jesus Christ. He is of the same nature as Jesus Christ, meaning a divine nature. He is our helper. He is our advocate. He is the one that Jesus Christ sent to take his place upon the earth and he is a personal being, don't think of him as some it that I hear sometimes people refer to him in that way. Now, secondly, I want you to look in chapter 14 and verse 17, and I want you to see that he is called the spirit of truth. He's not only the comforter, but he's called the spirit of truth. And I want to focus first on that word spirit for a moment. Spirit. It's a Greek word, pneuma. And it simply means air or wind, air, wind. Sometimes it's used to mean breath. We've taken that very word over into our language, and we use it as Americans speaking English and are not even aware that what we're saying. It always refers to air, wind, or breath. And so someone gets an infection in their lungs, and then we have to go to the hospital, and we say, they have what? Pneumonia, P-N-E-U-M-O-N-I-A, pneumonia. That's an infection of the breath, if you will, of the lungs, of that part of the body. We drive up the highway, and a fellow's working on the highway, and he has a jackhammer, and he's got that thing going. He's shaking all over. I like to look at people with that. They look like they're made out of jelly, don't they? And if guy's holding the jackhammer, and we call that a pneumatic hammer. 
It's operated by a line that has air going through it. Pneuma, the wind, the air, the breath. And so Jesus used that term. I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you an advocate. I'm going to send one of my own substance and nature just like me. And he's going to be like wind and air. He is a spirit being. You see, God is a spirit. Jesus said that in John 4 and 24, didn't he? He said, they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, that God is a spirit. So God himself is a spirit being. And Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that the angels are spirit beings. Angels, we don't see them, but we believe in them. The Bible describes the work of angels. Satan And the demonic forces are spirit beings from the evil side, from the dark side. Don't forget that there's not just God and the Holy Spirit. There are evil forces, as we saw in Texas last Sunday morning. And they have great power and they have great influence. And yet you don't see them physically. Now, I'm really asking you not to think like the contemporary world when I begin talking about this. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, Christianity describes another whole dimension of reality that the world today does not, does not even recognize. That dimension of reality is the spirit world. It says that there is a world that we can't see, taste, touch, smell, comprehend with our physical senses. It is a spirit world, wind, air, breath. It's real, but you can't see it. Taste it, touch it. It's not comprehended through the physical senses. And that reality, that world, that dimension, Christianity teaches, transcends the physical world. It's superior to it. It has strength the physical world doesn't have. It has powers and abilities that the physical world doesn't have. Now, we have become so scientific and so technological that a great percentage of our world today doesn't even believe that there is such a thing as a spirit world. They don't believe that it's real unless you can touch it, taste it, smell it, feel it, exercise the, the physical five senses. That's the only reality that they recognize. But the Christian faith and the Bible teaches us that there is another whole world there inhabited by God, angels, the Holy Spirit, inhabited by demonic forces as well. And that this world transcends, it's above our physical world in every respect. Jesus said this. You remember when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? And he was trying to explain to Nicodemus what the new birth is, what it meant to be saved. He said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, I I don't understand what you mean, born again. You mean I can go into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus said, no, no, no. Boy, you really don't get it, Nicodemus. 
And then Jesus used an illustration. What was the illustration that he used to describe the new birth? He said in verse 8 of John 3, the wind bloweth where it listeth, listeth old English word meaning wherever it wants to, wherever it desires. The wind blows wherever it wants to blow. And you see it, or you don't see it rather, but you see the result of the wind. You wouldn't deny that there's not such a thing as wind, would you? You see that wind can tear down trees and blow away buildings. Wind has power beyond any other physical comprehension that we hardly can know about. And yet, you've never seen the wind. You've never seen the air. After a hurricane, you see the result of it. Are you telling me it doesn't exist? But you've never seen it. And he said, such is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has infinite power because he is God. He has the nature of God. But you can't see him in a physical sense. He's a spirit being. A skeptic was talking to a Christian one day. He said, you don't believe in that Holy Spirit stuff, do you? And the Christian said, oh, sure I do. Well, have you ever seen him? No. You ever tasted him? No. You ever touched him? No. You ever smelled him? No. Well, how do you know he exists? The Christian was a pretty sharp old boy. He said, uh, have you ever, um, uh, he said, uh, do you have a brain? Have you ever seen it? You ever smelled it? You ever touched it? You ever tasted it? No, 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 no. Well, how do you know you have one? <laughs> Pretty sharp, wasn't he? The Lord Jesus Christ introduces us here to a whole dimension that modern man, scientific man, technological man, cannot comprehend through his instruments. We can't put an instrument on the Holy Spirit. We, we can't put some sort of measuring device on the doors and say the Spirit of God was there today. And yet if you're a believer, sometimes you know that he's very, very real, very, very much a part of who we are and what we are here. Notice also in verse 17, and then again in chapter 16, verse 13, he calls him the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth. This is one of my favorite titles for the, for the Holy Spirit, and you don't hear it used very much. Twice he's called in this one passage, the spirit of truth. You see, here's the thing that I so much believe in about our faith, the Christian faith, the historic biblical faith of Jesus Christ that we acknowledge today as a church. Christianity is a religion of truth. It is a religion of truth. It's not a mythological thing. It's, in fact, in so many ways, even verifiable. Empirical data, in some ways, can show that the Christian faith is a real faith, that it's a reality. And you see, in the Bible, every vital part of our faith is called truth. For example, God is called the God of truth. 
And then we come to Jesus Christ, and what did he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he pointed to the Scriptures, and the Lord Jesus himself said about the Scriptures, they are the truth. Psalm 119 says, thy word is true from the beginning. And over and over and over, we just get pummeled with this word. Time after time after time, as we go through the Scripture, God is truth. Jesus is truth. The Word is truth. And now here, the Holy Spirit is truth. Now, if they are all truth, and truth is that which is consistent with reality around us, then God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Bible are all going to line up, are they not? They're going to all say the same thing. There's not going to be any inconsistency between God, between the Word of God, between Jesus Christ, and between the Holy Spirit. They're going to line up just like the sights on a rifle. And if I'm going to be accurate and hit the target, I've got to align the back sight and the front sight together. And if I don't align them, then I'm going to be off. And in my faith, in understanding the Christian life, I've got to see what God says about it. I've got to see what the Holy Spirit's role is, what the Scripture speaks to. I've got to see what Jesus Christ said about it. And when I line all that up, I can be sure that I'm going to be led and guided to the truth of Almighty God. The Holy Spirit is truth. He always leads to truth. He shouldn't lead to error. And he, should, and he doesn't lead to confusion. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Number three, in verse number 17, I want you to see that he is also the indwelling spirit. He is the indwelling spirit in verse 17. He will be with you, Jesus said from now on, and he will be in you, with you and in you. One of the greatest truths of the Christian faith is this. Now, listen to me, please. It is that when you got saved, the Holy Spirit came in to live in your body, to live in your life right now. And according to chapter 14 and verse 16, Jesus said he's going to abide with you forever, meaning he's not going to ever leave you. It's a permanent thing. You don't have to worry about losing the Holy Spirit if you're a believer. He's always going to be in you. Even if you disappoint him, even if you grieve him, even if you quench him, which the Bible talks about those things, still the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the other comforter is going to come and he's going to live within my being. Now, he's called in some places the Spirit of God. In other places, he's called the Holy Spirit. In other places, he's called the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27, Paul said, He is Christ in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So today, as a Christian, this is, I'm, I'm not bragging, this does, has nothing to do with your, with your status of how good a Christian or bad a Christian you are. The weakest Christian in this building is indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. And according to Romans 8 and 9, if you have not the Holy Spirit, you're not His. So there are no Christians that do not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, it says, What 
Don't you know that the Holy Spirit of God lives in your body, that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Why do we Christians view the body as being sacred and holy? Because it's the dwelling place, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, for example, don't commit fornication, because if you commit fornication, you are joining the temple of the Holy Spirit with a harlot. And so just the knowledge, just the awareness that I am the dwelling place of Almighty God should radically affect the way that I live my life, shouldn't it? My body is the temple of the Spirit. He is within me. If I go and get intoxicated this afternoon, then I'm taking him with me. And if I go and consort with a prostitute, I'm taking him with me. And if I lie or cheat or steal or lose my temper, I'm taking him with me. It doesn't seem on the surface that this would be a really practical doctrine until you take the idea that God lives within the body of the Christian. And now if that be true, does that not affect every single thing? I I say I shouldn't be thinking this thought. I shouldn't be saying that word. The Holy Spirit is here. God is here. I shouldn't be doing this thing. God is here with me. He is embodying me. He is dwelling within me, and he's not going to leave. He is permanent. He will abide with you forever. Look in verse 7 of chapter 16. You also find something else that's a great truth. He said, it's expedient for you that I go away, for if I don't go away, the Comforter can't come. Jesus, confined to a body, could only be in one place at one time. But as I stand here and preach to believers at the Florence Baptist Temple, all over the country, a preacher can stand in his pulpit and he can tell those believers the Holy Spirit is here too. And we can go to Africa and the preacher can tell the congregation the same thing. And I can go to the forest reaches of China or Latin America or anywhere else on the planet because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God who is omnipresent. He's everywhere present. And Jesus said it's expedient. The word expedient means it's to your advantage. It's better than if I were on the earth. If Jesus were on the earth this morning, where would he be? I don't know. He would be in Jerusalem or he would be in, he would be, uh, in, in America somewhere, or in Latin America somewhere. But he couldn't be in every place. But through the blessed Holy Spirit, he is with us and he is in us. And it is to our advantage to understand that as Christians, we carry within our physical bodies the Spirit of God. Notice in verse 26, he is the Holy Spirit. I emphasize the word holy. You see, the foremost quality or attribute of God mentioned in the Bible is his holiness. In fact, it's the only one, only uh, attribute of God that the Bible says three times, God is holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, they didn't have the comparative and the superlative 
They didn't say, he is holy, he is more holy, he is most holy. They repeated the word. So when the angels in Isaiah 6 say, he is holy, 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 that's the superlative degree. That means he is as holy as he can be. That's the most holy. It's like saying most holy. And here, the spirit being that is of the nature of Jesus, who is our helper and advocate who lives within us, that spirit being is holy. He's known as holy. Now listen really carefully to me because this is important today. When I use the word holy, you probably think of moral purity. Some person who is very, very morally pure. I hope you don't think of somebody in a monastery, some ascetic or some figure living off in a cave somewhere, separated. No, that's not holy. The foremost attribute of God is his holiness. Yes, he is absolutely morally pure and righteous. He is absolutely pure. But we've got the idea in Christianity today that to be holy is more than doing, that, that to be holy is just not doing certain things or doing other things. Going to church, reading your Bible, witnessing for the Lord, uh, living a godly life, and then over here, don't do certain things that are, are wrong. That's our idea of holiness. In February 2012, in the uh, February issue that year of Christianity Today, I read a statement, and to me it describes what it means to be holy better than anything I've ever heard. And so I read it to you. Understanding that holy, what holiness means, that God is asking more of us than mere morality. As long as our notions of holiness are limited to doing certain things and not doing other things, we can go through our entire lives, listening, listen to me, folks, obeying the rules or at least maintaining the appearance outwardly of obeying the rules without dealing with far more fundamental questions like, whose are we? To whom do we give our first love? and our first loyalty. At bottom line, God's call to be holy is a radical, all-encompassing claim on our lives, our loves, and our very identities themselves. To be holy means that all we are and all we have belongs to Almighty God, not to ourselves, and that every aspect of our lives is to be shaped and directed toward Him. Hear me. Only a biblical Christ-centered holiness will safeguard evangelicals from the trap of moralism. Now, what is moralism? It's the idea that I'm a spiritual person because I'm moral. I don't smoke, drink, cuss, chew, go to the movies with girls that do. I don't run around on my wife. I pay my bills on time and all that stuff, and therefore I'm spiritual. No, 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 no. Holiness is more than what we don't do and what we do do. Don't get caught up in the trap of I'm a spiritual person because I don't do a lot of bad things. 
and only the Holy Spirit can produce a desire for holiness in our lives. I guess that's one reason I don't preach about it as much as I, any more than I do. The truth is, I can preach my heart out, and I can't change you one bit. I can't give you one bit of desire to live for the Lord. I can't move you one notch up the pole of godliness. Only the Holy Spirit can give you a thirst, a hunger to be a holy and a godly person. If he doesn't do that, I can't do it. I can't do it. No preacher can do it. No book can do it. No movement can do it. It is the Holy Spirit who produces holiness in our lives. And we just don't have that naturally. We don't have that naturally. You see, our flesh doesn't really want to be very holy. We just want to kind of get along and skate through life. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he says, you're mine. I live in your body, and I want you to grow and to be like me. So what is the practical importance of what I've taught you today? Well, why do you need the Holy Spirit? Turn quickly to the book of Acts, chapter 1, and let me show you one little phrase before we complete the message today. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost comes upon you. Why do you need the Holy Spirit in your life as a Christian? Because He provides a power that you don't have and that you can't operate successfully in the spiritual realm without Him. Now, it says he'll give you power to witness in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witnesses. So we need the Holy Spirit's power to witness, don't we? Secondly, I'd tell you, we need the Holy Spirit's power to have victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. When we, can't, when we don't have the Holy Spirit operating in our life, we're going to go down in defeat. The only way I can overcome those thoughts, those words, those deeds that are offensive to God, that are sinful, the only way I can consistently do it is through the power of the Holy Spirit. God said to us, be ye holy, for I am holy. That's a direct commandment. He wants me to live a righteous life, and I don't have the power to live a righteous life. You don't do it through duty. You don't do it through willpower. I'm just, <clears throat> I'm going to do it. No, you do it through the energy of the Holy Spirit operating within you. And thirdly, you and I need the power of the Holy Spirit to produce Christian character. And one of the upcoming messages is on the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. When the Spirit is given full sway in my life, he produces love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and all those nine graces that we call the fruit of the Spirit. Do you want to have more love? Well, you're not going to conjure it up by saying, I'm going to have more love, going to have more love, going to have more love, going to have more love. No. You're going to do it through the Holy Spirit operating in your life. 
He's the one who is the source of love for the Christian. He's the one who's the source of peace. He's the one who is the source of joy for us. And to you who are not Christians today, he's your only hope of salvation. You see, I preach the gospel. I preach the cross every time you come in the door here. But he's the one who convicts you. And so people come in this door, and they hear me preach it, but it it doesn't do a lot for them. And then the Holy Spirit begins to work in their life. And the Bible says in John 16 and 8, he is the one who convicts us, the unsaved world, of sin. By the way, that's not of all sin. That's the one sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. That's the sin that the Holy Spirit convicts the unsaved person of. And you sit in the seat and listen and say, you know, I don't know what he's talking about, but I know one thing. I need God in my life. And the Holy Spirit says, you need to receive Jesus Christ. Don't you reject Jesus Christ? If you keep on rejecting Jesus Christ, you will come to the point where you can't receive Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us, and I'll talk to you about that later. And then when you pray to receive Christ and you truly believe in him, John chapter 3 says that the Holy Spirit comes into your life and he regenerates you, meaning he creates a new birth, what we call being born again. So unsaved friend, listen to me this morning. You can't be saved on your own. You can't be saved without the work of ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. So if you don't know him today, don't wait another moment. Don't offend him and grieve him. You come today to Jesus Christ. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.